Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and this is a remotely interested podcast hosted at remotely hyphen interested for some and remotely dash interested for others. Ravi, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, oh God, I loved last episode with Ed Catmull, you know, talking about the kind of foundation of all of this technology and how in Silicon Valley, you know, they started getting these crazy machines, these uh, 3D kind of silicon graphic stuff. But um, now we're going to be talking about how they actually use that stuff to create great animations and amazing movies like Toy Story. You know, I'm really excited about watching the new Toy Story. I haven't seen it yet. No, I've not seen it yet either, but I, I think I really should after, you know, after we've done this interview. So this time we are really going to get into the meat and bones of Pixar. As I think I said to you last time, I could have had an entire conversation with Ed about not even talking about Pixar, but this time we go into detail. So you mentioned earlier things like silicon graphics and stuff like that. We end this one by going through a series of names, kind of a name association with Ed, just to give you an idea of how much he has done and how many people he has come across again in a very unassuming and organic way throughout his life. So before I go into the meat and bones of the interview itself, Joseph Licklider is one of those. He's a guy who's basically seen as one of the fundamental people for personal computing as we know it today and certainly interactive computing and things like the GUI would not be the same without him and his work from the post-war period onwards. Then we've got Jim Clark, who was the founder of Silicon Graphics, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, all of those uh, films owe some of their visuals and most memorable moments to the stuff that Jim helped create. We then got John Warnock, who was, he did a small role, Ravi. He was the co-founder of Adobe. You know, just a small, small company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then we've got uh, Martin Newell as well. Anyone who is aware of computer graphics and iconic stuff within computer graphics, his teapot was, was one of those icons. And then we also have have uh, Alvy Ray Smith, who was the co-founder with Ed of Pixar. So what we're going to do this time, Ravi, is we are going really, I guess, from the period of 74, we talked about previously when Ed was headhunted for the New York Institute of Technology. Then we went into the 1979 period with Lucasfilm and him forming the computer division period. This time we are going more into the detail of Pixar and how it came out through all of that essentially. So talking about 1986, we're talking about co-founding Pixar. We're talking about creative forces like John Lasseter, who Toy Story, A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, all of those seminal first films he directed for Pixar. We also talk about Lee Unkridge a little bit, who Coco fame, another one of those small films that Pixar did. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think you're talking about all these films and all these people. And like when Toy Story came out, the, the difference that Toy Story had, you know, it's hard to think now because we have so many CG films, we have CG TV series, um, there's mixes of special effects. But when Toy Story came out, the, the absolute change that it was, it was, it was amazing. Like the first computer graphics, 3D graphics that I'd seen was at the bowling alley when you, um, you know, you knocked over a few pins and it would animate them falling over. But 
that was nothing compared to this. Yeah, and for me, it was kind of the faux 3D of Tron. Yeah, yeah, Tron. That was also a Disney piece, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think the other thing, bringing that into what you were just saying, is we actually talk about Luxo Jr. as well, which was the famous Lamp film, uh, yes, which was nominated yes. in 1986 for an Academy Award. And that became the, the Pixar icon. That, to me, when Toy Story was coming about, that was the stuff of wow you know i mean we we kind of we had that terminator 2 sort of young sherlock holmes all of that stuff before it that kind of indicated where things were going then toy story came along and it was just it was just amazing i, I still remember going to the cinema and, and where i was when it happened shall we say and, and if you think about the amount of stuff that we get now so you've got wreck it ralph you've got coco you've got all of these different series and they've all got so much personality but the original kind of one was that lamp <laughs> the, the way that that lamp moved and the personality within it yeah and i think the interesting thing about the lamp thing as well it, it was john lassiter looking at the original i believe what they called the old men of disney the original animators that did all the innovation stuff in the early yeah. life of disney's company and he took those lessons and applied it to luxo jr and I think that's very interesting that you, again, coming back to the part one and how it links to part two, you have that thread going through, right? It's not just about the technology, it's about all of the ideas and I guess all of the the cultural influences that are going into it. You know, whether you look at it as cultural influences of pop culture or whether you look at it as cultural influences of behind the scenes and what was being built in the animation industry throughout a period of time, particularly in the 20th and 21st century. And I'd just like to say as well to our listeners, thank you so much for the response that we've had so far. Um, we've actually tripled our listener numbers and we're starting to get spread on a lot of different social networks so a great place to ask us questions would be on discord actually we've had quite a few people joining our discord group and uh, we'll have a link on the main page but also if you leave us a review in itunes those are really important guys because when you leave a review in itunes you get put in a new and noteworthy section and that's kind of your time to shine so we can really hit a new audience but what i'd say we've got some fantastic stuff coming up i'm not a fan of wrestling I listened to this wrestling interview that you did. Oh, my God. It is it is really good. And there's lots of talking points to come from there as well. So I think everybody's really going to enjoy what's coming up. For now, we'll leave it with Ed, but we will definitely talk more about the next episode when we come back for the concluding comments. Tell me a little bit about John Lasseter, how that relationship influenced you, but then, you know, also became... Because you guys are pretty much part of the lifeblood of Pixar. I know you're probably thinking, well, it's an entire community of people because you built that up but you know you guys in terms of foundation stones you really are fundamental to it well we were fortunate uh, because i say in in the rest of the, the studio world or the even the animation world what we were doing was not relevant there was an experiment that was done at disney and that it was they did something with i think it's where the wild things are it was never shown publicly because they didn't they never reached any agreement with the author so it's one of those things that people can't see because it's only internal. And they worked with Blue Sky, and that's where Disney was working with Chris Wedge, who was out of Blue Sky. And John is working on it, as well as Glenn Keane. And Glenn Keane's one of the best and foremost animators, hand-on animators of all time. But he got an Oscar last year for uh, his short film, which he did with uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, I think it was called... Deer Basketball or something like that. It's a stunning piece of animation. Uh, in fact, there's another story with uh, Glenn Keane. He's, he's really a phenomenal guy, and, and uh, he's off on his own now, but doing some amazing work. 
But they did this piece, and it was interesting, but it didn't lead anywhere. And John was pushing a project, but Disney at that time had been going downhill. In fact, after on the animation side, Walt, after he died, was the person who understood technology, but it wasn't in the DNA of the company. It was in his DNA. And his nephew, Roy Disney Jr., who's the one that got the contract going between Disney and the brand new company of Pixar, Roy did understand and could express the fact that his uncle understood the importance of adopting new technology that came along. And it was that understanding which actually opened the door for us to establish a relationship. In any case, we're doing this work, trying to meet with various people. There's a group that came up from Disney, which included John, but Disney itself was kind of lost. So John came up and worked on this project, which was, um, I'm not even sure if it's the first thing, but either the first or the second thing was on this uh, little short film we were making, which is Andre and Wally B. And the concept of it came from uh, Aldi. And we were trying to have a little piece that was demonstrated technology at the time. Uh, one of the key pieces being what's called particle systems, which is to have this, basically have this forest and then to have this little character in the beam, but also demonstrating motion blur because at that point we had, as a result of, it's another story, had come up with a, a way of having motion blur. And uh, so this is a piece to put it together. And so John came up and did the animation on it. And so that was a quite impactful piece, but the audience fundamentally was the SIGGRAPH audience. But John was very excited about it he returned to Disney to work on this film they were making, The Brave Old Toaster. Yeah, and so that didn't work out. So he ended up leaving. He actually was fired from Disney, which is something that he didn't actually talk about for many years because uh, the embarrassment of being fired from Disney. I'm saying that in contrast to Brad Bird, who was also fired from Disney. Brad Bird wore it like a badge of honor. <laughs> so there, was, there were these complex relationships that were all behind this. And John uh, was... We, we made a series of four short films and had a long-term plan. The long-term plan was do some short films, and then in order to hire some more people, is let's do commercials and then make a half-hour TV program and then go on to feature films. So that was our long-term plan. The next short film that we made, which is now after we're a company, because Luke is out there. Andy Wallaby was made while we were at Lucasfilm, and then uh, Luxo was made while at Pixar, and Luxo was put up for uh, an Oscar for short film and did not win. And nobody, except for the, the people who won it and a small handful of people, know who actually won that year because it was a completely inconsequential film. On, uh, uh, Luxo was a, uh, an astonishing piece of uh, short filmmaking, which helped change the industry. But it was so new and so radical that the short film branch thought of it as the computer doing animation. If you say computer animation, I mean, okay, computer in the animation. So that concept was too weird for them. So it did not win. This is a groundbreaking piece. And then next year, we made um, uh, Redstream, and Redstream won. Now, interestingly enough, there was another one or two computer animation pieces that year, and it was much tougher competition. Redstream won the Oscar. John's first Oscar. I, I think it's because a year later they realized that they'd made a mistake with Luxo. Then there were a couple other pieces after that, and then we went off to the, uh, make the commercials. And at that point, we could hire Andrew Stanton and Pete Doctor. I'd say John understood the principle that time that you, you want to hire people who are really extraordinary. I mean, the, the phrase that I use, which other people use, is you hire people who are smarter than you are. You know, it's just a phrase, but what it really means is 
you have to have the confidence of people that are coming in there so good they can do things that you can't do, which I mean, if you, if you, I think if you put it in that way, it's actually, it's, it's not a threatening way to think about it. But I've certainly seen people who hire down because they look at people coming in as some of you might threaten them in their position. And I mentioned this in the book too. I, I went through that period and you, you make a decision. And for those who choose to hire down, they never know what the alternative could have been. They don't learn a lesson from it. They just don't succeed. In my case, when I hired Aldi, I learned a lesson from it. It's like, oh, actually, my feelings of insecurity were unjustified by hiring somebody who was very good. Uh, and I talked about this a lot with John. So he brought in people. And then the reality is you don't know what they're going to be like. Pete was a better animator than either Andrew or John. And over time, Andrew ended up demonstrating to this day this extraordinary gift of understanding and seeing story structure. And he's got this uh, the ability to always speak the truth and say what he thinks. And he's very articulate about it and why he thinks something. But at the same time, he doesn't tell people what they need to do. He just gives his view, and which he expresses uh, in a really strong way. So that's our starting group. So having made a few successful commercials and still failing as a company, right? We're losing money in <laughs> over fist, driving Steve crazy because of the loss of money. But our next step is to make a short film. And so we approached various studios to help get funding for a short film. We approached every studio except for Disney because there were these uh, negative feelings that John had towards Disney because he'd been fired from them. Meanwhile, we had a contract, still had a contract with Disney for the software for the cell painting. So we were on other fronts, always communicating with them. And uh, I'd wanted to have us be able to write a paper about our way of approaching the self-painting program because I believe in publishing. And uh, it was Peter Snyder at the time who didn't like the idea so much. And then I was in his office at one point, this is where we're trying to make this short film. And uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what, instead of publishing a paper, I'm going to suggest something else. We'd like you to work on a feature film. As part of the context uh, at the time, they were on the uphill. They had made Little Mermaid, which is a big success. No, I'm trying to get the order right. No, actually, that wasn't true. They were trying to, the Little Mermaid and so forth was part of our original thing coming out of Roy. By the time this discussion, they were already super successful with Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. And they also had entered into a, a relationship with, to make uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. So that was Henry Selleck. Uh, uh, who's the other filmmaker? Tim Burton. Yeah, Tim Burton. So, and that was made in San Francisco, and it was meant as a boutique film, and that was their terminology, the boutique film, and it did well in the box office, and they were making so much money, they thought, well, let's experiment, let's try different things. So, since we were making successful commercials, then Disney thought, well, let's repeat what we did with the Nightmare Before Christmas with a computer graphics piece. So, Peter said why don't we enter into a contract? And at that point I said, well, we don't think we're quite to the point we can do a feature film. And our plan is to do a half hour piece next, which we'd already started on or thinking about, which was based upon Tin Toy as the character. And I'll never forget this because what he said to me was, well, if you can do a half hour piece, then you can do 70 minutes. And logically he's correct, of course. So I immediately said, oh, you're right. <laughs> So we skipped the half hour short. We then entered into negotiations. And in this case, it's Steve Jobs negotiating with Jeffrey Katzenberg over this deal. So that then started this process of making a feature film. So now we are committing to this 
piece, and all we had ever made was commercials. But we were very fortunate in that because over the years we had attracted the best people in the industry, that we had uh, a system and had Bill Reeves and Evan Osby and, and Tom Duff and Tom Porter, all these remarkable people who were building the system. And, and the people they brought in from various places were all smart as wet. In fact, just recently, I was going through the archives because as I'm passing the reins on to others, one of the things is to go through all the historical items and comment on them and get everything all squared away. And I was looking at the post-mortem documents of the people as they were talking about the making of Toy Story. And I was struck by how really smart these people were when we started and none of us had done it before. It's an important point is right now people get cautious because hey, we well, need to have experience. We made this film with no more experience than making little uh, four or five minute long shorts and now doing 30 second commercials. That was it. So that story of all this other people, of course, is too complicated to tell, but we had, we brought in these amazing people. So there was uh, Joe Ramps on the story side. We went through, I think, three editors and them are working out very well. And then we brought in this, this person who's pretty fresh out of school, Lee Unkrich. And uh, Lee completely hit it off with, Andrew and John and Joe. And uh, now we have this, this amazing group of people. And Lee Unkrich, probably one of the best editors in the history of animation. Really remarkable. And of course, later he directed Toy Story 3 and then he just did his own film, Coco. Amazing film. Yeah, it's one of our best films ever. And it, the thing about it was, we started off with a film, Toy Story, that changed the industry. But we just recently made... Coco, we made Inside Out. And so all these years later, the people are still understand the values of what we're trying to do and they're still coming up with remarkably creative and impactful films. So that's the group of people. And as we get close to it, then Steve, who also is smart as, as a weapon, he basically was the majority owner of Pixar, but he wanted to take his public. And uh, John and I thought that wasn't a very good idea. And Steve gave his compelling reason why we should. And it's part of the lessons he learned from the past. And Steve being a compelling person, when I say compelling, it wasn't he compelled us to do it. He gave compelling logic why we should do it. And essentially he was laying out likely milestones in the future and he nailed it. He got it exactly right. And I, I was in awe of his ability to do that and pull this off. And then because it was successful, then we started to get a lot of press about it. And the thing I noticed was and, and realize was when you have a complex story is the complex story tends to focus on a small number of people like Steve or John or me. And it has to be that way because it's the nature of trying to have something fit into a small amount of time or to a certain amount of space in either newspapers or magazines. And they can't capture the complexity and all the contributions. And I remember once, and this is, for me, it was one of these funny things that I can never forget. The, when reporters come, some of them, it's just a job coming and get the story and get out and move on to the next one. And for some, some of them, these are really sharp people who are trying to understand the story. And they're the best reporters to work with who are actually diving in for understanding. And this is one of those cases. We had a reporter who was interviewing people, and you could just tell, like, oh, I get it. This is really significant. But the interesting was the reporter was accompanied by a photographer. And after the interviews, the photographer came up to Steve and said, my publisher or the editor wants to have a picture of you. And Steve said, no, 
you can't have a picture of me because I didn't do this. This is done by a lot of people here. And if you put the focus on me, it's a distortion of the story. Now, this, this is just a photographer, right? He just got a job. He's hired. <laughs> His job is he was asked to get a picture. So he gets it. Well, he likes the picture. And he says, no, if you get a picture, you have to have at least the three of us in it. So the photographer agreed. So Steve was in the middle. And then what he did when the photographer was taking the picture is Steve pulled John and I really close together so that our heads were close to his. When the article came out, then the, the other two of us were cropped out. It was Steve's face only. And the reason it was impactful was Steve actually did understand that it was done by a group of people. He understood the nature of the way things worked, and he didn't want that to be the narrative. And I, I admired him for that. But I was always aware that you can't capture the complexity of what happened or that range of, of, of people that we had. So over the years, we as we grew, then um, one of the things was that uh, John brought others in and helped train other directors. So we were actually in, in this wonderful place where a lot of people were coming up and expressing their creativity. And uh, this led to not only the success, but it led to, after Michael Eisner left and Bob Iger came in, it led to a good relationship between Bob Iger and Steve and essentially Disney then buying Pixar and then John and I being put over Disney animation. And, um, and so that was a, in itself, this wonderful series of events that took place. But here we are, I don't know, we're like, how many years has it been? Let's see, we started in 86, 96, 06. So what is it? This is now 33 years later. And about five years ago, I picked the, the two people that I wanted to be my successors. It took a year to sort of get them in place, but then Andrew Milstein and Jim were put in place. And this four years ago, they were made president. Because I believe that you have to, or in my view was, cause I, I had seen the studio go downhill when Walt died. And then I saw Disney after the successes during the 90s. After those leaders left, again, it went downhill. So I believed strongly that we weren't really successful unless we had succession in place. So, and, and that's kind of a difficult thing, that the, the successes were set up. So it was Chan and down at uh, Disney and Pete at Pixar on the creative side, and then Jim and Andrew on the management side. But a lot of processes, a lot of things put in place to arrange for a successful group who now have to do something that's different because they can't repeat what we did. And I wondered at the end, because it, you know when you go through succession, it's not an easy process because your mind goes off in different places. But I even wondered when the time came for me to retire and actually turn the reins over. And I also realized that if you're setting up succession at some point, you have to let them really take charge. Otherwise, you know, they get um, disillusioned, disheartened. But I, I wondered, what was I going to feel like when I turned the reins over? And uh, since at the end of last year, we set the time to be the end of the year when I turned them over, what I found was actually a sense of fulfillment, that I had started this path, switching my life to going down the path of computer animation with that first computer graphics course in 1971, that uh, we were now at the point where we had a healthy group to succeed. It's not like, I don't feel like, oh, I'm, I've left it out a sense of loss. It's more like, wow, this is awesome. I feel good about the people. So I don't have this emotional feeling of loss. It's the emotional feeling of pride in the people and in fulfillment. 
And now it's time to look at something else. And I'm not, in fact, I've never done this. I'm not a person that looks backwards. I try to learn from the past, everything that I can, and then realize the implications of it and then look at something new. So that's what I'm doing now. I think, you know, having the many times I've been over to the studio, what you've done there is, you know, they talk about social engineering in the workplace, but I think what you've done is social alchemy in the sense that you've created something that is looking to be self-sustaining. But I think also as well with Pixar, the other thing is, it's technology to facilitate storytelling, not to dominate it. When you do see that, you can really tell from what's on the screen that it's more about the whiz-bang effect, so to speak, than actually getting to the kernel of the story. What you've done at Pixar is amazing, like on many levels, many. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I, one of the things I took pride in is really early on. This is when Toy Story first came out and we saw the reviews and almost all, all the reviews I only had one or two sentences about it being computer animation. The rest of it was about the story. And what was cool about that for me was the technical people, as those who had made it happen, all took pride in that. That is, if the focus had been on the technology, then they would not have felt like they succeeded. They succeeded because a, a good story was told. And that understanding of the relationship and that it was a combined effort of artists and programmers and scientists and managers that it was putting it all together to make something that was impactful to people around the world, that that was the important thing, was the impact. And you're only going to have the impact if all it focuses on yourself. You're only going to have the impact if everybody uh, was working well together. And would you like to talk a little bit about the Brain Trust at all? Uh, yeah, it started originally as a group of people. So you could, you could say, okay, here are these, I think it was eight people in the original Brain Trust. Anders Dan was the one who first coined the name. And uh, it changed over time. It was very remarkable because what we saw were the filmmakers helping each other and trying to solve problems. Now, over the years, as we grew, we got to the point where we realized that the Brain Trust today is not a group of people. It's actually the name of a meeting and we run that meeting, the brain trust meeting, with a certain set of guidelines or rules. So not everything is done this way, but this meeting is. And that is this is a meeting in which you take steps to recognize that the creative team over the film is showing something that they know is flawed. So they are vulnerable and in order to make it safe to listen and safe to talk, it's important to remove power from the room. So that the room itself and nobody in the room is allowed to override or dictate to the creative team or the director what to do. And in doing so, it turns into talking about the various issues in the film with very healthy, helpful collaboration and stimulation, but it's removing their fear from the, the room. And we take a lot of effort to protect that sense in that room. Now, we don't always succeed, in general, it works very well, and that's why the films turn out very well. And, and sometimes it doesn't, because even though we try to keep the power out of the room, sometimes people will infer it, or they're trying to be careful, or they don't know how to interpret strong voices. So things can go wrong. And, and I viewed one of the jobs of the leaders and the others was to protect the environment in the room. And while it's fun to listen to the notes and make comments, the most important thing to make sure that room functions well. And every once in a while, real magic happens, and that is, what you find is ideas come and go without anybody becoming attached to them. So 
that's this ideal state. So you may put out an idea and the idea doesn't work or help and it doesn't matter. Like you're not being judged by it. And when you reach that stage where you're not attached to the idea itself, you're only focused on what it takes to make the, the story as a whole work, that you end up in this ideal state. And usually every film has one or two of these. These are the most remarkable of the meetings. And we usually have these meetings after we have a screening of the film. And uh, when we have offsites, which we might have um, one or two per film, operate under these same conditions. It's all about safety and helping. Not, not only do the people like each other, but they all uh, deeply understand that another person's success is their success. And there's somebody does well that when your film comes out, if our name means a lot, it helps everybody. Because you are pretty much, you know, I think it's safe to say you're probably the father of, of texture mapping. And, you know, as you were saying, you're moving on to the next phase of your career. What are your thoughts or current interests around computer graphics and the future of computer graphics? Well, it's my, my, my uh, even though I'm in the film industry, a lot of my best friends that I've had in academia. Right now, it's actually not so much in computer graphics. If I'm trying to understand other, in a deeper level, other areas, I think that the deep learning, which is having a, a major impact, but still in the early days of it, it's going to have an impact in the future. So it's, I want to understand that better. So it's going back, looking at various other things that are, aren't directly related, but still are related to change in technology and the very idea of being on the frontier. As well as, you know, I go out and give speeches and talks and consult because I'd like to help others. I don't have another 48-year-long project <laughs> in mind. So uh, you know, the question is, you know, how does one be impactful and how to express it? I am working on revising my book because I've learned more. And I like the idea of trying to get concepts out to help others do something which is impactful and good in the world. And I've got a quick uh, word association stroke person association for you because you're somebody that it's very clear you've met a lot of interesting people in a very organic way throughout your life. So if you could just give a, you know, the thoughts that come to mind, the immediate thoughts that come to mind when I say these different names. So Joseph Licklitter. Well, I didn't know him personally, but uh, he was one of those leaders which who understood the, imp the, the potential for what was coming. And, uh, and enabling that environment that we have was uh, one of his great contributions. Alan Kay. Alan uh, was, the, the, he took pride in the fact that he would not normally have been accepted into the university so that Dave Evans saw something in him. But he is an inspirational person to talk with. And that inspiration was like this sort of the, the soul of a, uh, obviously, I think one of the, the souls of, of Park. And, uh, but having that kind of mindset and openness was, it was really remarkable. James H. Clark. Jim was, I and mean, he actually came out work at New York Tech for a while. I mean, as, as I mentioned, uh, uh, he and I worked on the surface work together, and we became good friends at Utah. Again, whip smart and extremely passionate and very emotional. One of the reasons he didn't stay at New York Tech was Alex Shore didn't really understand what it was that he was funding. And because he didn't understand that, and he was also, uh, I guess he snooped on some of our mail through the early days. Jim just I couldn't get it. So there's a major conflict between them. Jim and I taught a course together out at 
Santa Cruz, and he had this incredible intensity. But one of the things I remember is he was obviously the founder of Silicon Graphics, but it, again, it was one of those cases where they brought in, quote, the adult in the room. And so you got the founder, who, like in the case of Steve, was being sidelined by the person that they brought in. And I remember at the time, Jim saying that he thought that the competitor of Silicon Graphics was not Sun, but was Apple. And his view was, was they had to think about the entry level, and he was absolutely correct, and he was pushed out. And ultimately, the company went the opposite direction and then became irrelevant. But part of the reason he was pushed out is he was so intense about something that he knew was correct, and I knew at the time that he was correct. So uh, it was into that intensity and that intelligence which then led him to go and, and help fund and make Netscape happen. And Netscape was, like Silicon Graphics, one of those transformative companies that led, uh, as I talked about before, led Microsoft to do this rapid turnaround. I mean, unusual for a company that size, which is part of this transformation. So each of those like connect together, but those are those two big things where it took this intelligence and passion and drive, which led to major changes. And most people don't know Jim Clark, of course. He kind of disappeared from the radar, but, you know, the browsing stuff got started and the, the computer chips, which not only changed the industry, it changed graphics, and then it really got the, the browse stuff kick-started were because of his intensity. John Warnock. John is like a super nice guy. He was really smart about what he was doing. He worked on, I, I know because he, he'd come up with an algorithm for, for displaying surfaces, but then he went on to come up with a language for uh, making or describing images there at Park, where he was part of that amazing group of people. And the two, of course, all, they went off in different ways to form companies. And uh, he had the ability to lead the company, to change it as he went along, establish good relationships, good relationships with Apple, because Steve recognized what John had was important. And being able to take what John was doing with Adobe to then be able to drive printers was one of those things that enabled Apple to really succeed. It's a part of that people don't really understand, but for those around the time, it's the fact that you could print from your computer was one of those things that turned it into a, a major tool. And then it was acquiring from the Knoll Brothers uh, Photoshop and then transforming it into a something which is still major in our industry today. And it became it was CEO and chairman of that. So here's a person that was, again, impactful, following one of these threads, going from 3D graphics to 2D graphics to printing to graphic arts in general. Martin Newell. Martin came in as I was getting close to leaving, and uh, we, we became very good friends. And he, uh, he was the one that made that teapot, which was used. I was aware of the fact, although it wasn't until later that I talked about it, that his original teapot was uh, taller, <laughs> more like a real English teapot. And then somewhere... I forget how it happened because I, I thought actually the size had been cut in half. But he said no, it was cut to two thirds or some or some weird thing like that. But the iconical thing actually was a result of a mistake that was made to his original teapot. Because they wanted him to stay at Utah, but that was around the time when Arthur was cutting back, as I recall. Alvy Ray Smith. Alvy was started off a different direction, but he he wanted to pursue the arts, and so while he was working with automata theory, going to Xerox Park changed his life. And while he was out there, because he wasn't really funded by them, 
the leaders at the time were, were fixated on the office. And so this notion of painting or using color was not something that was endorsed, which frankly, even at the time, was a pretty weird position to take. So since he wasn't really funded, he went out to uh, Utah, and uh, Dave Evans said, well, actually, the group you want to talk with is out of New York Tech, because we had just bought a color frame buffer from Evans and Sutherland. So there's a time there in which we had more frame buffer capacity, actually probably in the rest of the world combined at the time. So Aldi came out and with David DeFrancisco and uh, came to New York Tech, so I remember that, meeting them, having to meet with Alex, and that was when the decision was made to hire him. So we formed this really strong working relationship, came up with a way of filling lines for the 2D animation. And then Ali was more focused on the paint side or a paint program, and I was more focused on the, the 3D. But I also wrote a 2D animation system. So we were trying to cover the gamut at that time from 2D to 3D. So Ali was he basically... Well, painting had started, he was really inventing the real way of painting and the algorithms for making it realistic. I mean, realistic as a, as a tool. And finally, uh, is there anything else that you'd like to add? You, you know, looking back on it, because you know, I've done some reflection, not only the, the people there, but I recognize that a lot of this was due to the environment and the people around it who made it happen. That is, for me, it was growing up in this really safe environment in Utah, it was having this support at the University of Utah, and it was having Alex Shore and George Lucas and Steve and then Disney and Bob Iger, all as people who were open and, and basically trusting us as a group to do things our way. And, uh, I, and I just appreciate the trust that was given. And that's, that's what I wanted to pass. What I try to do is like, you start from a sense of trust. You don't start from people have to prove themselves. You start from the assumption of you brought them because they can do it. Some people might you know, not be able to do it, but you don't say, well, okay, prove you can do it. It's like, oh, I know you can do it. I, and I think that's a better, safer, and more open way of advancing what we're doing and then trying to make what we're doing helpful in the world. The Remotely Interested podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube, and Facebook, not to mention many more as new platforms get created. Like us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash remotely dot interested. Follow us on Twitter at that interested. And also feel free to reach out to us either on Twitter or via email contact at remotely dash interested dot com. So there we are, Ravi. That was part two of the interview with Ed. I think it's amazing. And, you know, I, I'm so happy that he managed to finish his 45-year project and that it was so good, actually. I think one thing that kind of really stood out for me was the idea that 3D was, I don't know, it was kind of seen as maybe cheap or tacky. They'd been doing adverts before and stuff. But, you know, they, they mentioned Nightmare Before Christmas being kind of a, a boutique film. And they're not accepting at the Oscars this kind of 3D animation style. It's pretty interesting. And it must have been a hell of a risk to actually go in for the full feature film of Toy Story. You know, if you do that incorrectly and you've got all your money there, you know, they said they weren't making money at the time. They needed to do something. That is an incredible risk, isn't it? But also... Uh, it comes with incredible reward afterwards. Yeah, I think part of it, if you think about it, 
there's this this thing of serendipity and timing running throughout everything, right? Whether it's going to work in New York, whether it's being headhunted by George Lucas after the success of Star Wars, whether it's Steve Jobs, let's just say leaving to be polite, Apple, um, and wanting to, whether it's conscious or subconscious, go through a journey of different states of whether it's, you know, what he was doing at Pixar or whether it's what he was doing with Next and then going back in to the company that he left for want of a, a better term. And then the other side of it is John Lasseter say leaving a company like Disney or being fired, not liking that Disney being the last port of call that they were thinking of in terms of approaching as a film studio, but having technical contracts with them that kept that dialogue open. And then the chemistry of Steve Jobs and the CEO of Disney later on, which led to the acquisition of Pixar. There's all of this stuff of taking a chance, but also things lining up in the right way at the right time. And in that interview with Toy Story, it's a prime example of it, right? Ed, I wanted to publish. And then they're like, well, why don't we do a film where we were thinking about doing a 30 minute short why not just make it like an hour to 70 minutes you know that that to me is there's an element of there's design there in the sense of you listen throughout this part of the interview and they're clearly over a period of time building up the infrastructure of the tool chain that was needed to create something like toy story right but it's building into a wider thing of this otherwise bespoke or very much cutting edge community of people building things like computer graphics tools. Suddenly it reaches a tipping point and that tipping point is kind of around about the same time as the internet and the personal computing boom. I, I kind of like, you know, this this weird connection with technology. So like, you know, when they did like short films or featurettes before, they'd be experimenting with a with a kind of animation style or, or, or a new different style. And that would often turn into a main feature or something like this, but they'd always put that little feature out. That seems to be like a tech demo to me. Yep. But, you know, I guess the point that it turned from tech demo to animation mini was when the personality was put into there. And that's what changed it from being, look at those pretty graphics to, Oh, wow, it's a little story. Absolutely. And I think it also ties back into that idea of creativity, which Ed has been talking about throughout both interviews, but also came out with his book as well in terms of under creative conditions or people thrive in creative conditions whereby they're not restricted in one respect. Do you know what I mean? You have an end goal, but at the end of the day, you also there's a level of trust there, which Ed did talk about in this interview, whereby you know you're going to get it done and it's okay to fail in order to succeed in the long run. And that that's another thing that I think is interesting as well when you bring up that point. And I find the move of Steve Jobs moving from Apple, um, where he would be with a team which would be structured in, in a similar way to movie structure, actually, you'd have you know the, the hardware designers, you'd have the software designers, you'd have all different departments. But I guess he kind of felt more like a team there when he was talking to those press guys and saying kind of, you know, all of us have done this. It's not just the individual product or it's or it's not just me and Waz or, you know, it's 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 not the, the Macintosh team or it's not the Apple II guys. It's like, it, it seemed like a more kind of encompassing thing that he was into at, at Pixar. 
Yeah, and Ed actually expands upon that in his book as well. He actually says that Steve didn't, that element of computing was not his world, right? There was a big difference between Apple and what they were doing at Pixar. So I think having that element to it, it's he understood the the things that were potentially driving the future of technology. But with Pixar, it was in this place that was just so... I wouldn't call it bespoke, but it, was, it wasn't within his reach. So maybe that's another reason why there is that element of like, it's not just me, it's these guys. You know, because he really appreciated what they were doing because he understood it in one respect, but in another respect, he didn't, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, because, uh, you know, he, he was safe with computers. He could, he could do a lot of soldering and stuff himself. And I, I mean, I have to admit from the takeaway, one of the takeaways for me from this, this interview is I have a, I have more respect for Steve Jobs now that I've spoken to somebody like Ed than I did previously. And that's not a knock to the guy, but sometimes I feel as though he as a person has, has kind of become like this deity of technology. Yeah. I, I, I think a lot of the focus on him is business, you know, and it's mm. that he's the businessman and we forget about the creativity. It's very easy to say, other people did this. Other people did that. He was just the, the seller, you know. But um, with this, you know, he's fully into it, fully into it. And uh, I think one great point about it with Ed is actually just sticking at what you want to do and having this one project for over 45 years. You, you complete it. It's an absolutely amazing project. The world's in awe. And then you just sit back, you know. I, I mean, but I think that's the thing is the fact that once they got acquired it wasn't a case of sitting back. It was a case of, I've done this now, what do I do next? And the next yeah, was yeah. creating that that legacy and that further element of infrastructure whereby they could bring what they created in terms of the creative flow back into a company like Disney. So again, as I said previously, this full circle thing of these ideas being planted by Walt Disney, you know, through TV and other things with kids of you know, Ed's generation and the generations after it, and then it coming back into the company. I think one fantastic thing about it as well is kind of to continue that legacy of working together, of working in an environment, uh, the, the whole section about the brain trust, which you talked about, which was, uh, uh, would you be able to explain it for it? I don't mean to keep coming back to Ed's book, but obviously I've read it and it's very much a case of, he explains a lot of the importance of it in the book and the book is kind of the culmination of everything he's learned throughout his journey. And the brain trust is essentially a way of what I would call sharpening the saw, right? In the sense of when you have a project, and I've seen this a lot in the 3D stuff that I do, there's this, there's this thing that's finally been given a name called the big project, right? And in the, okay. three, and in the 3D communities I know, the idea of this end deliverable, whether it's a massive 3D image or a massive 3D model, is more alluring and more important than the actual end result. So it's kind of like chasing a future that's in sight, but never quite there. What the brain trust does in terms of my interpretation is, as I said, it's constantly sharpening the saw in the sense that you are looking at a stage of the process, you are getting a group of people together in an environment of trust, you are critiquing it together and then you are making it better in order to then move it to the next phase and the next phase and the next phase. And Ed has actually been on record as saying, when our films start production, they're not very good. But by the end of it, 
basically they become good through the process of something like the brain trust, whereas it's constant creative feedback throughout throughout the way of the actual production. And with without that creativity, you'd be aiming to like, oh, let's redo Toy Story, but let's just do it so we can get the hits or get the views. And like, there's not many film franchises that people would be excited for the number four coming out. I can think maybe Star Wars, uh, a few of us, and that's about it. Because, you know, a lot of films, when they come out, they'll be doing the second or the third, and it will just be a complete um, washed-out story. You know, there won't be any innovation in there. Toy Story 3, I was laughing on the floor with Barbie and Ken being introduced, all these new concepts, and... That all must come from the brain trust, you know. I think the other interesting thing about the Toy Story example is I believe it was Brad Bird with Toy Story 3 when he was talking about Toy Story 1. You go back and look at it now and you can see the limitations of the animation, but it's still as fresh as it was the day it was released because of the story. Oh, the story is absolutely fantastic. And also, I've got the 4K version, and they've redone all the textures. So if you do watch it then, I think they used the actual old Silicon Graphics machines and used the original files and redid the textures. So Toy Story 1 re-release last month was just mind-blowing. Another thing to add about the brain trust is this idea of trust. And Ed certainly brings that up in the interview whereby he talks about hiring somebody not to fail but hiring somebody on the basis that you trust them to succeed and if they don't they Mm. don't but that's the key thing that's something that i think is different at pixar to maybe other companies and certainly you know in the technology stuff that i work in I've seen in a lot of different companies this there's an inbuilt insecurity in corp in the corporate structure in the US. You know, where it's this idea of climbing the ladder, chasing the brass ring, whatever you want to call it, and it can be, you know, it can be pretty tenuous for people at times. But I think based on reading Ed's book and based on the interview that we did with him, it's very clear that Pixar is a company that's had time to develop in a number of different ways. And I think overall, if you look at it, another thing is in a number of different circumstances and conditions, right? Whether it's Disney, whether it's with Steve Jobs, whether it's with George Lucas. Well, also it's a total different culture. So the idea of getting everybody in a room, removing anybody with power, and then having a free flow of ideas is 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 incredibly different to say the corporate culture of Apple where they were implementing the crunch, which is now a kind of standard in games development, a horrible thing, I think, where they're forcing people to do huge hour weeks to try and get this out, you know, and and that's kind of that whole technology culture. So when Steve Jobs actually must have came to Pixar, he must have totally thought he wanted a different kind of culture. I don't know, maybe that'll be a third part with Ed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's it. Well, I'm really looking forward to the next episode. Um, what what do you have planned then, Adam? So, when you interview somebody like Ed Catmull, which again, I would very much like to thank him, and I mean this without ego. It, it just amazed me that I was able to have any time with somebody like that. Well, where do you go from that, right? And basically, what I decided to do is I have always been interested in doing something on professional wrestling yeah i find it really interesting because i i'm sorry to say but i I, i'm not a fan of wrestling i never was but like from what i've seen it developed in the 90s this kind of 
sense of um, reality that wrestling creates is kind of goodies baddies stuff has kind of gone around the world at the moment and it's a very different art form you know you can break the fourth wall you can talk directly to the audience you can create these kind of personas and these arguments that are like 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 shakespearean stuff you know what i mean and there's always a, a set of standard arguments so they're always fighting over something i i just find the whole dynamic of wrestling and how it's such a huge industry especially in america because uh, it's not that big here but in america it's it's massive isn't it the, the thing that i found really interesting about professional wrestling and why i wanted to do an episode on it because this is not a wrestling podcast basically it's always been an industry that's adopted new media very quickly and if you look at it historically whether it's in the 50s and 60s television where it was massive in the us and the uk uh, the UK up to 1988 when World of Sport basically shut it down and then it opened up again res- uh, recently because actually, Ravi, the pro wrestling is actually very big in the UK again. That shows how much... Oh, okay. Yeah, that shows how much you really don't care about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've got a stadium yeah. that's near my house and I know that they've had TNA and all of this other kind of wrestling stuff there. But um, I've also I have been keeping an eye on other stuff, which is like the Hulk Hogan sex tape court case which is sending uh, setting a very strange precedent in a, in the american legal system so a lot of stuff is interconnected with wrestling amazing yeah and that's and that's basically again it's it's something that's always had its finger on the pulse of stuff like i was saying whether it's 50s and 60s tv in the 80s it was pay-per-view i even remember like back in the 90s like saddam hussein as well he was always seen as this enemy and like oh you know, goodies versus baddies. They had like Sergeant Slaughter, Sergeant Slaughter, yeah, all of that stuff, and the old um, Soviets playing in with a uh, Rocky and all of that stuff as well with the boxing. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, I've always wanted to do an episode for that reason because it just seems to have its finger on the pulse of something. And as I said. I interviewed Ed and I'm like, okay, where can I take the next episode? And I just thought sometimes in order to move forward, you need to move sideways. And I thought this one was a good time to do it. And that's why I'm doing this podcast, to explore stuff that I'd not explored before, you know? Absolutely. So anyway, I then basically reached out to somebody who was running a wrestling school in the local area. And it turns out that he is also involved with a company by the name of AEW, which has just been uh, created by Tony Khan, who is the son of the person that owns the Jacksonville Jaguars NFL team and the Fulham FC Football Club. Okay, wow. Basically, the next episode is going to be all about professional wrestling and how it engages with communities and its relationship to other things like technology and culture. And whilst you guys are waiting for that, you can drop us an iTunes review and go out and watch Toy Story 4 because we're going to be doing that. Absolutely. All right, thank you so much for listening this week. And until next time, see you soon. <laughs>